Hello, and welcome to Business Without Bullshit, where we take a sideways look at modern business, talking to founders and entrepreneurs and generally crazy people about the problems they face and how they solve them. I'm Andy Ori, and alongside me is my co-host, Juliet Ori. <laughs> Hello, I'm <laughs> loving the voices. Carry on, Andy. Trying a range of inappropriate voices, you know. Anyway, now, with that being said, our returning guest this week is the incredible Courtney Fingar, Editor-in-Chief of Investment Monitor. If you don't know what it is, look it up, sign up immediately. A digital publication focused on foreign direct investment, which launched in September 2020 as part of Global Data PLC, a sister company to the New Statesman. Before joining the group in 2020, Ms. Fingar spent 15 years with the Financial Times, where she was editor-in-chief of FDI Magazine, that's Foreign Direct Investment Magazine, and the head of content for its data division, FDI Intelligence, as well as a contributing writer for the FT newspaper. Courtney has covered business stories in all major regions of the world and has been on assignment to more than 80 countries in her career. She is a popular panelist and moderator at the International Economic Gatherings and has appeared on television and radio as a commentator on international investment. We are in extremely good company. Hello, Courtney. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's good to be in person this time. It's much better to be in person. So um, there's many things to discuss, not 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 least um, your global knowledge, I would say. But what's keeping you busy at the moment? Well, our Investment Monitor publication launched uh, 18 months ago, and we're growing it, scaling it up. It's growing quickly, so we're very happy. So we're busy about that. Readership has taken off, especially in the last few months, so I'm happy, but... Oh, particularly, did something happen in the last few months? Uh, a few global Couple developments happened, but uh, while we wish that they had not happened, it, we found that our data-backed journalism and deep analysis seems to be what people were looking for to try to make sense of the global impact of various events. So, Courtney, where did all of this begin? What was your first job? Oh, well, I had some, you know student-y, teenage jobs, doing all kinds of various things. You know, I did, you know, the various jobs there. I worked my way through um, university. I self-funded, so I always had, you know, various jobs. Side hustles. So I was hus- side hustles all over the place. I was always doing something. But when I graduated, um, I went to University of Alabama, um, so I kind of ran away from home in a dramatic episode because it doesn't seem like a big deal now, but I had never left the country. Most of my friends, most people I knew didn't. I, you know, got a passport in secret and hatched this plan to come to London. So I came... Purely to visit? No, I was wanted to do the backpacker thing, but um, I showed up here when I was 22, and so I had never been anywhere. I had barely been in even a really big city, so everything was overwhelming. And I did find a job at an expat newspaper called The American. It's still around. I still see it occasionally. So that was a job, I guess a real job. Um, but, you know, it was a pretty tenuous thing. I mean, we would get paid. It was that kind of thing. You got paid weekly. And I remember I got paid 100 pounds a week or something ridiculous like that. And even then the check would bounce sometimes. <laughs> um, so that was a real job. 
ish, but the problem is I only had a six month visa. It was a working holiday maker visa. And I was in love with London, but I couldn't stay. The visa ran out. And I was like, no, this just got good. I mean, I found my place, but I, so I moved to Washington because I thought, well, I'll start my career there and I'll hatch a plan for how to get back to the UK. So then Washington, I guess I count as my first real, real, real job. I got a journalist job at a news aggregator called Greenwire that was covering environmental policy. Kind of, um, it was part of a prestigious political publishing group, but a sweatshop type job. I mean, we were all really young and paid very badly. And we started work at six and you had to pound out all your stories by 10 a.m. It was really good practice as a journalist to write. Get it out. Right, get it quickly up. on a deadline. And I'm, I assume it was old-fashioned printing, like it had to then yeah, get Yeah, you out. just had to get it. You had to bash it out. It's a very good skill, but I'm not a morning person, so I lasted nine months in that, and I thought there's got to be another way. So then I thought, ooh, monthly magazine seems a better pace than this yes. daily so Got some time. Got yeah, some time. got some time. So then I, I uh, got a job that I loved at a magazine in Washington called Global Business. It was basically, it was FDI. It was writing for a U.S. business audience about the bigger world and opportunities. That's other place. (laughs) The the, the great beyond. So that I really love, but that went bankrupt. I mean, publishing is a, is, you know, it's a tough business. You're always, and that was another place where our paychecks would bounce. I'm still good friends with my colleagues from that time. And we joke about how we'd race each other to the bank because you knew not all the checks were going through. So then I made a savage move of changing bank to bank at the place right next door to the office fuck off, really. so that I could be the first in with my paycheck. So finding it hilarious, you were paid in check. Well, imagine, it, you know, this is early, early 2000. So yeah, it wasn't, auto, there wasn't any automatic, you know, a deposit going on then. So anyway, that went bankrupt. Then I was thinking, well, I need to get back to the UK somehow. Um, so I decided to enter as a student. So I went to Edinburgh, master's degree, as a way to get back here, which I loved. And at the end of that, I did get a job in London and a work permit and everything, which is what I was desperately hoping for. And that was a, a magazine called The Trade and Forfading Review. Forfading? Yeah. It, it's, you, you probably more. It went bust, didn't it? Well, <laughs> it's, it's a trade finance thing. You probably know factoring, for yeah. example. It's a cousin of factoring. And obviously, and when I took the job, I didn't know what it was. And there was barely even Googled in. So I was like, well, I guess I'll, somebody is going to tell me what this means. But keep nodding. It was a trade finance publication at a publishing group in, in Putney. And um, I was editor of it. I didn't know what I was doing because I had never been editor. But again, there How was did you get the editor gig? Well, they, you know, they, it's just this publishing thing where they, you know, you have very low salaries, so you can't really get anybody with experience on, you know, on peanuts. Ah. So they sort of bring in young journalists and be like... They give you a and big my, job title. Yeah, my friends, we all had a magazine. We're like, okay, you run that magazine, and you take that one, and you take that one, and you take that one. And we were all, let's say, 25, 26. Nobody knew what they were doing. Wow. Um, but it was really fun, good experience. And then, and I got a bit of business travel with that, so I was happy. And then I joined FT after two years there. FDI at the FD. And how long is it? How old is FDI? That was um, founded in 2001. 
just shows, doesn't it? It's like sort of late 90s, it sort of started to happen. Because it was becoming a thing. That was the globalization, globalization was booming. So that's why that magazine was launched. I And I joined in 2002. I wonder if it was e- email was one of email was one of the reasons it started happening. What you know, what changed? You know, technologically or what? Nineteen eighty nine, ninety nine. Why was it such a big difference? You know, it's like. Well, I do think, yeah, maybe the communication, um, the, the world was getting smaller in a way, made it more manageable. Yeah, I think globalization really makes sense. Maybe I'm going to answer my own question when you can start saying. So we've got 27 offices, and in every office, we've got a person just like Sandra who does the accounts. Should we just get one or two Sandras in one office? And this is what this guy explained to me. He used to work Philip Morris Tobacco, some old guy in Australia. And then he was saying, oh, you know, Andy, in the 70s, you know, uh, we used to go to one meeting a year in, in London. Sometimes they'd come here, and we'd have a meeting for a few hours, and that's it. You know, we couldn't send them any information. I can't keep the accent up. Couldn't send them any information. He would say, you know, it would have taken us, it would have taken us, you know, a month to print it out. And then, you know, two months to ship it there. And they would have had all the reports. There was so then. much more autonomy. You know, and, and he just said, you know, we just fucking got on with it, basically. The blokes in London did. turned up, I'm sure, chain smoking cigarettes in the 70s and kind of said, like, you should go into baby products. And they were like, good idea. See you next year, you know. And that was it. And, and so... Answer my own question. That requires sort of global accounting. It requires the sort of telephones, faxes, emails. That, that speed that of communication. Right. Because one of my first jobs, which was over twenty years ago, so in law- lawyering, was working out centralizing a global business, like a business that had is global, still exists very successfully, and had offices all around the world, but entire physical offices of entire physical people with accounts and HR and everything per country. Yeah. And they were then working out that actually we've learned in Eastern Europe, they're amazing at marketing and, and, and they're cheaper. half the wage. And you know what? We're going to centralize our marketing department to there and they can distribute to each of our offices. There are and cultural generalizations, but you wonder whether this is part of this problem we talked about, that we're all living not just in bubbles, that all the companies are sort of just bits of companies. You know, it's like, well, put all the salespeople in Italy or, you know, put all the finance people in, you know, You're saying India. the Italians are best at sales. Well, they certainly got a good chat, haven't they? We get all the kind of, Britain gets all the kind of like, don't give us sales, we're shit at sales. <laughs> we are. I've never met a client with a good sales team in England. I mean, very occasionally, and they're usually Italian, but, you know. <laughs> but, um yeah, it's clear. Okay, so back in, so back then, you were basically you first. You start being able to say, "Well, I'm an editor of a magazine." Uh, when you're in London, having yeah, a drink and I enjoyed drink. that. That was yeah, a, that nice. was a perk for yeah, sure. Have my card. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, nice. And then the FDI then hired you as what? As editor. editor. Oh, you went straight in as editor. Well, you once you've been editor, you don't go back. Is well, that, that the deal? You can't. Yeah. You can't go back. <laughs> you can't, can't be demoted. There's some other expressions connected yeah. to this, but anyway. <laughs> uh, okay, so you became the editor, and how long were you there? Fifteen years. Oh, she she was the backbone of the FDI, uh, and I'm sure it's going well still. Is it? I mean, you know, it's yeah, still going. Yeah, still going. So the final step was you actually got to set up something from scratch. That's terrifying. Yeah, scary but exciting. Of all of the sort of steps to get to that moment, what was do you think your biggest fuck up? Well, it was at the the trade and forfeiting review. I had only been there a couple months, and the backstory to understand is that it was very old school. This 
trade finance community and was very centered around London. I mean, it was international, but it was really just some older bankers drinking in the city of London. Ah, and it was very proper banking. Yeah, it was old school, really fun actually. And it was very gossipy community. And unlike what I do now, where we're again, we're not trying to break news, we're not really into gossip, we're just trying to analyze things. There it really was you needed to get break news. Break, get gossip. Who's doing what deals, what's happening. And the way I did that is I would go to these pubs with these dudes and drink all afternoon and they would start. And it was in a way effective because I was 25-year-old girl. Beautiful they were all, girl. They were like, they were hello. Guys. They would start running their traps, you know. They would be buying rounds and start showing off and telling me gossip. And I still remember that I couldn't be there, you know, like documenting. But somebody I was going to say, me, how did you remember? This well, is I'll that. tell you my trick is that I would not, and people would, somebody would tell me something juicy and I would be like, mm, okay, I'll just go to the ladies. And I would write notes in the ladies' toilet and then come back. And I was always, they probably thought I had a bladder problem, but I kept leaving and writing well, down. Well, the more interesting the story gets, the more she needs the toilet. <laughs> yeah. And so what happened is one of these episodes, let's say, a guy at a boutique trade finance company got drunk and confessed that they were selling fraudulent, fraudulent deal paper. Wow. And um, he's telling me everything about it, the deal. And he he wanted to unburden himself because the— It was all about to break. They knew, yeah, you, and they his, knew you were an editor. Yeah, I mean, there was—yeah, he knew exactly what I what I was. This guy had a kind of—he uh, you know, wanted to unburden himself of this situation. So I went, wrote down— then we published it, and then all hell broke loose, of course, because the MD of that company was, like, calling, and I'm going to sue you, and it was pretty scary to be always very new, and then you're getting threatened with libel case, and in in the end, it, it was okay because it was true, and, I mean, there wasn't much they could do about it, but I, I learned a lesson about also quite a crash course in media law, um, and— to be careful, and it it was true, so that's the defense. But I almost got lucky that it was true because I hadn't vetted it as well as oh, I you should have. It. I mean, I asked a few other people, but I, you know, it could have gone wrong because if that weren't true, then it's it would be such a problem. A common so, story. So anyone is. that has been in meet, anyone that's a journalist starting out, and everyone has got a really similar story, and it's the first time that you print something and you get this call and you find that your pants are down and you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's very scary. And it's the rowback. And interestingly, like... And you were like, where'd you get this story? Well, I was hammered in the pub <laughs> with Barry. Uh, right, and I have my proof as this yeah, note I wrote on my hands, In the ladies' loo. <laughs> you know, on my receipt here. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting. You also always want to stand up. And uh, but but be you know the the lots of the media and the the threats from the lawyers and I is often just yeah it was it was just threats intimidation it, it was very scary and an, an, another guy in that community who always looked after me quite well he saved me because he got a copy of the deal papers and we could prove that it was wow. fraudulent so I kind of was rescued by this proof but it did really teach me a lesson about 
Don't rely on one person. Yeah, and to be careful. Writing things down in the toilet. <laughs> that, that, yeah, don't do that. But um, no, do that because that was actually a good strategy overall. Yeah. But there's funny stories of uh, one of the the men of that sort of time period that I'm still friends with. He, We always laugh that he, he remembers that he put through expenses. So he would often pay for these gatherings. And there would be, I don't know, six to 12 people there, everybody having their pints or whatever. But because I was a journalist, you, know, you could always expense a, a lunch or whatever if you say, oh, I was with the press, right? <sighs> so he put through this expense, and it was you know something ridiculous. It was like, I don't know, 100 pints and seven gin and tonics and all this stuff and one bowl of chips, you know. And he puts lunch with Courtney Fingar, editor of Review. <laughs> and his, you should have that phrase. The accountant was like, "Is there? You're not telling the truth, or does Courtney Fingar has a serious problem?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the latter, obviously. <laughs> exactly. What do you think is most uncomfortable then about being an editor, not being the um, the, the grand fromage? <laughs> well, I think uh, in some respect, it's it's related to my libel incident. I mean. Something you you have to take such care. There's such responsibility about what you put out there and that everything has to be accurate. There are consequences if it's not. So there's that fear of getting things right. But then I guess on a more personal slash anecdotal basis, and it's more related to my personality type, I find that the nature of my work and everybody that knows me well, so I have a quite big network and the thing about doing FDI is it can be really high level network because all everybody cares about attracting investment. So you mingle. Everybody and, wants to meet you, Courtney. That's everybody it. Everybody wants not, you. It's about I mean, the God, FDI. It's taken us months. Exactly. It's about the FDI. But I've I've struggled because when you're in the media in general, people always want something or they want you to cover them or they're pushing their story or they want you to promote their company yeah, or they want this from you. But then when they know that you may be well, well connected, yeah, that I'm happy to really to support that <laughs> kind of thing. That's up. fine. I'm happy to be anybody's <laughs> excuse on a dodgy expense claim. But I find that I struggle a lot with um, being asked for favors mm. and it's constant and it's related to maybe a bit of the female thing is hard to say no, don't want to hurt anyone's oh, I feelings. Think, no, none of us are good at saying and, no. And but. I and I just feel um, it's it's personally a challenge for me, but it's related to my job. So I can't think of a day when I'm not slightly uncomfortable because someone wants, oh, you know that Can you connect? government person or you must know somebody or I've got my business oh. plan and why don't you help me? And I've, I really find that hard. Have you learned to say no? Because I can imagine you could spend your entire life doing that and not your own job. Exactly. And not well enough. I mean, I never will do anything. I have to always be, okay, I want my publication to have its integrity. So I can't, you know, I'm, I'll always do what's right for that but it makes me so uncomfortable and it's just constant. And again, I think it's just partly a network thing, but it's partly a journalist thing. And then there's like this weird pet peeve where if you're a journalist, you know, 
people will say, oh, don't quote me on that. Or they start pitching me, pitching me about their thing. And even though I'll say, I don't cover that. I don't. And when I worked at FT, in a way, it was worse because you say, oh, the, oh, you work at Financial Times. Let oh, me tell you about just. my startup. And you'd be like, please don't tell me about your startup. I'm begging you. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not yeah. going to tell me like a human anymore. You're going right. to tell me like you're, you're talking gonna to a journalist. Me. And exactly. it's like, so I don't care if you tell yeah. me about it, but just fucking tell me about it, you know? So, so certain professions, journalists get this. Lawyers. Uh, lawyers. I say can me imagine. all the time. If I say to people, I'm, they're like, ah, oh. What area do you do? You know, I've got this oh, problem. Oh, Could I God. run it fast? And Actually, medical, me. I need to get back medical to too. <laughs> I bet um, doctors, yeah, yeah. Have that. So you know, if you say you're a doctor, oh, I've got this ailment. Yeah, I, I can only remember one or two times, and one time where I I snapped, and it was because you know, I remember distinctly. I was in Cannes. We're in a nightclub, and it oh there had God. been a conference. It was MIPM, but it was over. It was. Free time. Three you're, o'clock you're, in the morning. I'm with colleagues, but with friends. And, the, you know, the music is loud. It's in this kind of trendy nightclub. And someone says they want to chat. Well, and my, yeah, the host of the party kind of says, oh, it's Courtney's my friend. And she worked Financial Times. And this guy sidles up to me and he just starts pitching his company. And I kind of said, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, yeah, anyway, well, I don't cover that. And then he kept on and on and on and on and on. And I just snapped and I said, dude, three o'clock in the effing morning. Yeah. I don't Leave me alone. And then he, I, then I felt bad because he just shrank away. But yeah, maybe I'm better off with the great, great. Yeah, I'll do that. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's doors always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. So, Courtney, you've now begun your own magazine, effectively, building your team. What are you most excited about as you look forward? I love my team. How many in your team now? Well, we're, we're, we're quite big. We have on the editorial side 10 um, wow. But we have five data analysts and economists in Belfast, and we have 18 in India who are collecting the data, the FDI data. And Where does that come from, the FDI data? A lot of it is web scraping, so you've different means. So you can have web scraping mechanisms that pick up on any reference to words like Project investment expansion. Wait, scraping. Factory. I think of scraping my windscreen. <laughs> yeah, you do data exchanges with investment agencies. So 
The governments tell us what projects they collected. We tell them what we have. It's a very inexact science collecting FDI data because you can never collect all the projects. You're just collecting trying to all get data. I imagine you're yeah. just trying to get a. No, I mean, and I've also learned historically. I reckon it might have been easier because people were more respectful of borders and went to embassies and went through government and said, yeah, "I'm thinking about that's doing." That's true because and now more are doing it themselves. I mean, I've just done an introduction today of a massive business that's saying, I mean, we've been talking to them for ages, but yeah. they don't think to go to government. They're like, why do I want to that, do that? That's exactly it. There are other ways. I mean, with the bigger companies, you can do things. So you obviously look, we study their annual reports and you can map where their offices are. And we have this project that's continually mapping subsidiaries. So it's not easy, but that's the research we do. Um, but the team is phenomenal. And I feel... Um, I mean, genuinely lucky. I mean, I love the way, I like the talent. I love what they're doing. But as people, the chemistry is good. It's just But Courtney, I feel you underestimate yourself because I have to say I quite like a job with you. I'd like <laughs> you as my boss. I yeah, feel you'd be an amazing boss. So supportive. I'd be writing crap. You'd be like, well, you know. Because <laughs> um, uh, uh, I, I, as you know, I've loved some of the um, the humour that you've been doing. What's what's, what's you're, you're sort of doing, it's a hard line, that one, because you're like the investment monitor is terribly popular and you're dealing with all this data. But... I do like a slant of humor. Are you are you going to keep that or is that? Yeah, that is a, our newsletter that you're referring yeah, to yeah. called Eye on FDI. It's written by our managing editor, Richard Gardham. And Go, that Richard. Is, that is very much his humor. Yeah, and yeah like we're it. definitely going to continue that. It works. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's very British. I don't know. But these these deep, heavy subjects that are sometimes very concerning, it really draws you into the conversation. Yeah, and it. you need that. The, some of the people on the team call it, refer to Richard's dad jokes. Dad so joke. you're a dad and you like the jokes. So it all adds up. Okay. Ah, I'm going to have to read and see what I reckon. Funny, funny old man jokes. <laughs> and four, you've got this great team. What are you most excited about then? Well, I don't think it's it's a juicy and gossipy. It's just that we are, you know, we build a publication. It's going really well. We're really excited about it. We're collecting all this FDI data, so we have lots of cool things we can do with that to try to doing interesting things on modeling and forecasting to try to predict where investments might go, which companies will expand before they know they're expanding. So, what country does FDI best? Oh, we haven't done bad historically. We've been fucking it right up recently. Well, yeah, Ireland. Ireland. They're the masters. Are they? Yeah. And why? Because they've got cheap tax rates. Nice place. They do. Well, their FDI offer is good, but I mean the way that they do investment promotion. I mean, they just sell it so well. They're very savvy, sophisticated. They're smart about the way they target what they do. And on the the the, the sales side, you know, they are just extremely good closers. They're jokes in FDI world of other investment agencies. If, you know, you're on a company shortlist and you find out, you're going up against IDA Ireland. You're like, oh, well, we lost that really? one. You know, they're just cl they're, they're closers, but they're savvy. They know what Something they're they, the they know so what they're charming. doing. Gift to the gab. They are, and they. I kind of admire the way that they might not appreciate being sort of couched in these terms, but I, as an American, appreciate how well they fleece America's love of Ireland. I mean, <laughs> I remember, you know, they have this flight from JFK to Shannon and. 
when you land at JFK and you're you're coming down the you know the the jetway, they're having like speeches of John F. Kennedy and they're talking about Ireland and America and their relationship. Wow. And then they have this promotion about investing in Ireland, and I just thought, you know, well played. You know, you yeah, really, yeah. you really. But that also does them a discredit in the sense that they are strategic and good about how they. Yeah, Think because you're, you're Irish-American. You're not English-American. There's no such thing as an English-American because an English-American's an American. Well, exactly. So everyone else gets a sort of, I, we've been rather done out of the branding, I think, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's, it's not, all right. We can, we can as, get our roots I'm out. a British-American. Well, that's like. it. It's not as good. And you know who else is good is, um, is Costa Rica. They are wow. also very, very, What very, are they pushing? Birds. Coffee. Well, Birds and coffee. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they've got all the tourism thing, but they, they're interesting to me because they, they really managed to move up the value chain, which is what most countries, you know, developing countries aspire to, and they actually did it. They went from, yeah, just like making the coffee, you know, coffee beans, it's, and now they, they got it. It dodgy a while back, they, wasn't it? No, but they are really good. They, they're um, not too instable. Their stability's not No, bad. they are, they've got a stable, clean environment, but they, they put a huge focus on skills. They educated their workforce extremely well, so they started getting higher and higher value investments. They got a big investment by Intel years ago, and they managed to leverage that into other activities and global clusters. conferences. They've suddenly come out. Everyone's I very think, keen here, I can tell uh, you. Yeah, I, I rate them. And as investment promotion agencies and, you know, the kind of business that we're in, in terms of who's good at how they how they build their FDI offer, I give them top, top marks. Oof, listen to this. This is the awards. I feel you've got the to awards, include yeah. one more. So first is Ireland. Second is Costa Rica. Come on, you've got to get us in there. Um, Third? Well, no, the, the UK... Well, I, I think it's less interesting in a way because the UK just going to, it's about what, how not to screw it up, right? I mean, you're going to get good investment, right? I mean, it's it's an attractive destination for FDI. You just need to not screw it up. So I think what's more interesting to we me are the places. To our government about yeah, this. That, <laughs> you, the places I have to fight for it a bit are more interesting in a way. But of, yeah, of, they're not complacent and they're really on it. Right. And they Especially care. smaller places where they really know that they have to go and fight for it. So they have to be really smart about what they do. Is there a project you've ever been involved in that you were really excited about, found amazing? Well, you mean an FDI yeah. type project? Well, I don't know. I mean, we're, I'm more involved in the sense of, um, I guess, knowing about it and studying it, not facilitating, yeah. you know, one... Coming. But have you ever looked at something and gone, wow, that's pretty interesting? Well, it's local, but, you know, Alabama is an interesting Alabama case study. And it's uh, actually how I got interested in this topic because Alabama, you know, in my childhood was pretty much like a developing country. And we had very basic economic activities, textiles, so on. And then... In I have the, to say I have in my mind a real backwater Alabama. Well, feel it's- in, in some ways, yes, and in other ways, no. And where I'm going with this is in an FDI perspective, it was, yeah, very low-level activity. The textile factories went overseas, which caused economic devastation. Um, Alabama's not typically a very well-governed state, lots of corruption, but the one thing that they did that was incredibly smart was um, Mercedes was shopping around where it would put a factory, its largest factory outside of Germany. Alabama went for broke on that, got the factory. 
It's been reinvested in many, many times over. It's billions and billions and billions of investment, but then they got all the all the um, component makers, the whole supply chain came. They invested the state funds a lot, um, investment in skills. Now, so what happened is that that changed the entire economy of the state. That happened when I was in university, and I remember being fascinated by it. So that sparked my interest in this FDI thing. And it really, the number one um, job job supplier in the states now is automotive. But where I became proud, I guess, is that a couple of years ago, Boeing was shopping where to put a factory. Um, but this is obviously very advanced manufacturing, making aircrafts, um, billion-dollar investment, a 1,000 jobs, and Alabama won that, whereas they would have never won a project like that 20 years ago. It was also satisfying because we beat out Florida and other enemy neighbor states. So I love it. <laughs> the territorial. So I was not involved in that at all, but I found that interesting um, and kind of exciting. The big, the big um, FDI moves, so the big brands, the big things, they're often everyone jumps on board and everyone gets behind it. It's the sort of smaller stuff that's, you know, I don't know, they, it, need, it needs the information and the help more in a way. Correct. You know I mean? That's a positive development, though, because I used to always rant about that, about investment agencies overlooking even mid-sized companies mm. at expense of... Um, the bigger ones, but now there's a lot more interest in small in SMEs, in startups. Everybody, those agencies tend to know that they need to cultivate and help those. So well, they're that's actually, improving. you're right. They're seen as an ecosystem now. Almost, mm-hmm. you look yeah. at them as a collection. Right. Okay. And that in in is Alan Barmer fostering uh, an ecosystem of entrepreneurs? Please, someone shoot me now before I use another acronym or whatever. Those. Yeah, were. I don't think so much on that yet. No, okay. I think they've they've been very focused on attracting the big FDI projects, which is right because that's what was needed. Did you just say automotive is now the biggest employer in America again? Alabama. Ah, in Alabama. Okay. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Wouldn't almost surprise me if it was automotive between sort of Tesla resurgence and stuff. That would be huge. Yeah. And what's the best piece of advice you were ever given? Well, my, my grandmother, who's who's uh, passed away about six years ago, but was, I mean, in a way, the closest person in my life to me. And she was your classic sassy Southern grandma, full of witticisms. Um, And so she always gave great advice in every scenario. But I remember... I remember in particular one time her saying, you know, about me, I think, wanting to branch out and go on adventures. And she said, follow your heart, but always keep your head. It's kind of cliche, but it, I think that applies to life in general very well, in every scenario, if you think about it. Are you the eldest in your family? Your brother's younger. No, I'm the middle. You're in the middle. Okay. Go on, say it. I'm the middle finger. You want to? <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. But it's true. <laughs> Okay, now uh, your top three reads, pods, or records, music, uh, talking, or uh, reading? Podcast, I go very, I have two extreme directions because I am a politics nerd, so I love to listen to some American political shows. There's one called Pod Save America, 
Um, the I think the the New Statesman World Review. I love to listen to that on the weekends. Is a good um, update. Very very well done and very smart about global affairs. I even like nerdy legal ones from the U.S. that talk about legal issues and politics called Talking Feds. Um, but then sometimes because I have to write and think and work about really serious things, I just sometimes I want just full on trash. And one and of what's my, the go-to trash? I, well, I love dating reality shows. Oh, that's, that's my, what my wife likes. I just watched one last night when I, they have to make the which decision. One? The ultimatum. The yes. ultimatum. Yes, the ultimatum. Oh so, my god! I was trying to go to bed. I was absolutely yeah. gripped. I was like, yeah. I hate her. Like him. Fuck yeah, them. So you know. I. I. I what should, is I'm this? Not a, oh, it's amazing. I'm not ashamed to say that. Not only I watch those shows, which is probably bad enough, but then I listen to podcasts about them. Oh, wow, um, to get the details. To get the details. I just find that, and especially if I'm stressed, I just love to just it's revel like in the trashiness of it all. Right. So I took you down I've the road. I've got to ask you about, you, you mentioned two books with the same name, uh, and, and the author's got the same name, but the surname. Is that what? Explain no, this to me. I got my roots confused. So a book that I always recommend that I love, and I'm biased because a very close friend wrote it, but it was a New York Times bestseller, so it wasn't just like me and her mom that thinks She's this is a She's not available for networking with us. <laughs> no. <laughs> and her name is Ruth Whitman, but I have a very talented writer on my team called Ruth Strucken, so I sort of, ah. was like, I sort of like typed the wrong Ruth name but out of habit. But anyway, Pursuit of Happiness is about mainly American, but I think it can apply in other cultures as well, being so focused on chasing happiness as a goal, trying so desperately to be happy that we drive ourselves crazy trying to attain oh, this oh, elusive thing. Oh, my mom thing. would love this. She hates the fact that we're so obsessed with we must be happy, that we forget what we're doing day to day. That's right. And the fact that this illusion of happy, it's like, what is that? Like, exactly. That is the premise of the book, but the way it's written... Um, has a lot of research, but my friend happens to be extremely witty, and I find it quite insightful. Oh, so I always recommend it. that book because I think it's Nothing a very to do good with the film. Not the Will Smith film, no. I think that's um, the, the idea that um, we're we're in, live in a constant state of happiness. You sh- you should you should try and move forward. You should try and grow. You should try and be a better person. Andy, you should Andy, try and uh, understand yourself more. During that process, you'll be sad, you'll be happy, you'll be frustrated, you'll be horny, you'll be angry, you'll be high, you know, whatever the the, the state of mind but is. But I, I like to go back to our granny and the fact that she she was Which happy one? to be alive. Granny B. Oh. Our, our mum's mum, you know, lived through the war, you know, bought, they got a house, they didn't have anything in it. You know, the expectations now of house and everything and perfect life and all of this. She was happy to be alive and have some food. She learned how to cook with rations and they were much more happy. She's a had, terrible cook, so no one else was t- happy. <laughs> she obviously couldn't tell. But I agree we've lost some of the perspective on that and our expectations are, are pretty wild. Another book I would recommend, and it's just because it's... Um, because Ukraine is of such great interest to people right now, but but not really well understood. There's a book called Borderland. It was written by Anna Reid. She was an economist um, correspondent there right at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And it's a history of Ukraine, but is, is readable and interesting. So people are always asking me about Ukraine, and it's sort of like most places to understand the present, you have to understand the history. So I always send people off to read that book and then come back to me. <laughs> this yeah. Okay, discuss. Andy, we didn't get that homework before this. No. No, I didn't give it to you with enough notice, so there'll be no pop quiz. 
Okay, so that brings us to our favourite part of the show, the business versus bullshit quick fire round. D, cue the music. This is where we reel off a list of key terms, Courtney, and all you have to do is tell us whether you think it's business or bullshit. Okay, Courtney, are you ready? I'm ready. I did not prepare for this, though. Nope, but you you just yeah, off show. the tip. We need, we, need, we need business, or is it bullshit? Diversity quotas. Uh, business. I'm not sure we can be friends. <laughs> <laughs> minus 100. Stand-up meetings. Oh, interesting business. Have you had one? No, but maybe I'm going to. like it. <laughs> We met someone who had one, and then he said, oh, well, no one stood up, we sat down. <laughs> uh, caffeine. Oh, business, business. Mm. Agendas. Meeting agendas, that is. Oh, bullshit. Uh, hour-long meetings, the fact that meetings should last an hour. You mean at the maximum or minimum? Well, you're in a Just different world. I know your world is probably five minutes. Okay, I've got five yeah, minutes. So okay, I've got five minutes. But our, our world is one hour, one hour, one I hour. think it's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Shorter is better. Even saying it makes me think it's Shorter bullshit. Shorter is better. Office dogs. Ooh, business. I would love to bring my dogs to the office. What dogs do you have? There are three mutts in Italy. Three months in Italy. Living, living the life on a farm there. So they, they, they want no truck with an office. Carbon credits. Oh, um, I'm going to say business. Swearing in meetings. Oh, business. Essential. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the only thing everybody agrees on. Yeah, pretty much. It's going to be interesting once we get the big brands and the governments in here whether they're going to agree with us, Andy. I feel, I feel that's where it's going to be. Well, they can fuck off if that's the case. Pub lunches. Oh, business. Yeah, well, quite. You learn a lot from your pub lunches. <laughs> Writing things down in the toilet in a, in a mischievous way. Oh, that's very interesting. That's on this list. Top business. <laughs> B Corps. What? I'm glad you say that. I'm impressed. Uh, yeah, it's B Corps is a standard of practices brought in by the Americans. Everyone's signing up. All the tech companies over oh, a B Corp, don't you know? And that basically means that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've looked at my triple bottom line and I've sort of, you know, I've said, oh, you know, I don't, I, you know, I'm nice to everyone or I don't know, you know, fluffy, fluffy, good, you know, it's good stuff, people say, you know. Sounds well intended, but high potential for bullshit. Yeah, well, Hi. well said. NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, which you must be very familiar with. Bullshit. In your... Bullshit, they are bullshit. Do you, do you sign any sometimes? I've never, I've never signed one. Be I've funny never to give one to a journalist. That's like counterintuitive. Well, exactly. That's she refuses. They, they just don't exist in her world. No, yeah. Because she wouldn't be able to print anything. Unlimited holidays. Oh. Vacations, as you may may say, don't know yet. I think that's business because I think if people are getting their work done, they should be able to take off as much time as they want. Were you are you saying you may institute it, in, in, introduce it? At yeah, your... for myself and everybody, <laughs> starting with myself and then working my way down. I'll trial it from the beach. It's, be, it's not been working. <laughs> Uh, it's going, you know, it's just can't get the editor to back to work. So, uh, but I'm not, you know, I can't take away my benefits. You know, I'll resign. Uh, LinkedIn. I actually love LinkedIn. It's a business. Yeah, quite helpful. Formal work clothes. Oh, situations. Situationally, yes. I think office attire, bullshit. I mean, you shouldn't have an office dress code, but for certain scenarios. I don't want to see people slumming it at a conference. 
So excellent. That's the end of the quick fire round. Okay, so this is where we give you 30 seconds to pitch your company, podcast, book, whatever you like. Off you go. Okay, so investment monitor is a great way, even if you're not involved in making investments or deciding where your company sets up. It's a great way to understand the landscape for business globally at this current moment in time in a smart, witty, engaging way. And how do we get hold of it? The good news is, friends, it's free to read. No paywall, no subscription. Just log on and check it out, investmentmonitor.ai. If you like Andy, enjoy dad jokes. You can also sign up for the Eye on FDI newsletter, which is also free and weekly. So you're being rather unfair to Richard. I think they're high quality humour. The sort of humour you get on this podcast. Uh, and so his is weekly. How how often is the other one? Uh, well, it's it's daily. We publish a couple stories every day, and again, you can check it out at any time. Um, and I encourage people to do so. Again, it's a great eye into what's going on in the world of international business. It's great because they go. You know this fucking thing you read about, you know, that's a complete nightmare over here. Well, you know, we've done it, and here's... I love a graph. Here's a graph, and here's another graph. And then we did this other graph. Look at that. And you're like, yeah. And you feel like, <laughs> I love a good pie chart, yeah, don't we you? Guys, but we like visuals. Graphs we like galore. visuals. Graphs glorious. It's just also, let's get to the facts. I fucking can't... I'm so fed up with journalism, which is that was this soundbite or this thing over here, and then here's an article, and you read it, and it's a header... And then it tells you the thing that happened. And then maybe there's a sentence or two of like an opinion or something comment there making. It's fucking rubbish. It's just like, oh God, I got to the end and nothing happened, you know? And when I try and write stuff sometimes, I find even PR agents say, oh no, what you need to do is put the bit at the top that everyone knows, put the other bit that everyone knows, and then we'll give you a couple of sentences at the bottom to say what you wanted to say. And it's like- Dull. Words, can't we fucking just get on it? Like, we, what, we have to start every article with this setup? You know, oh, they may not know about it. It's like, well, fucking tell them to Google it. I don't know, you know? It's so annoying, you know? Um, anyway, oh, it's really Great getting things off my stuff. chest. You really are. <laughs> I feel better. It's been good. He's had a glass. Yeah, yeah. He's feeling all right. Oh, it's much better. Okay, great stuff. So, Courtney, if our listeners want to find out more about you online, what's the best way for them to do that? And not ask you stuff. Not asking me in a nightclub. No, actually, my, I have a, a nine-year-old niece in Alabama who who called me with an allegation recently and she said, do you know that if you Google you, all kinds of stuff appears? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go do that. You hold on, hold on. Google it's all out there, folks, on the World Wide Web. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. Thank you, Courtney, for joining us. Thank you to my co-host, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just fart? I don't know what that was. <laughs> I, I meant to go like, boom. Okay. Uh, a big thank you to you, dear listeners. And we'll be back with BWB Extra on Thursday. Until next time, it's cheerio. Cheerio.